it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kierkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. This week I catch up again with one of my all-time favourite interviews, Dr. Tim Cooper. Quite apart from being the managing director of the 150-year-old Cooper's Brewery, and a wonderful bloke, Tim is one of those rare interviews that actually engages with the premise of a question and tries to actually provide an answer. Believe me when I say that is quite a novelty in this game. For the listener, it means you will get much more out of the conversation with Tim than you ever expected and you'll get from anyone else. And that we do in this episode, as we learn whether Tim thinks that Coopers was too slow in moving to cans, how Coopers managed to stay relevant to new generations of beer drinkers, and also, would Coopers ever consider buying a craft brewery? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. As you'll hear, the conversation went over time, and even then, there were at least half a dozen threads to the conversation that I would have loved to pursue and have put on my list for next time, but just couldn't for time on this occasion. Even so, there is more than enough that we do discuss. So, there is no need for my usual, I hope you enjoy this. You absolutely will, but I'll be very surprised if you enjoy it quite as much as I did. Tim Cooper, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thank you very much, Matt. Good to be with you. I always look forward to the November results coming out of Cooper's because it really is a bellwether for how the industry is going and you know pulling out some of the industry trends. And I wanted to talk to you about this year's because I think that's truer than ever with the way that you've gone. So maybe we, we could start by just uh, you uh, telling us how you've gone in this COVID year uh, w- w- with the family company. Thanks, Matt. I mean, it's been an unusual year with um, some things which have been uh, predictable and some things not. I mean, clearly uh, keg volume was um, significantly um, impacted with COVID, um, but more so at at the end of the previous financial year. So in those uh, three months uh, of FY20, uh, uh, April, May, June, there was um, a, a big drop for everyone in keg volume, and of course that included um, the breweries taking kegs back from the trade to help the trade, given that trade was was sh- uh, the pubs were shut. Um, so uh, we, although we had a little bit of a lift in keg volume relative to that year, it's still more than twenty percent down on the previous financial year. So, um, I mean, it sounds silly to say, but we have to almost go back to 2019 to see the what the impact on uh, kegs has been. Mm. Um, but keg volumes still remain about 20% lower than they were prior to COVID. So, um, as I say, we had a, a little bit of a lift up in keg volume in this FY21 year. I think it was 3.7% up. Um, and the pack volume uh, was also um, up a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, what's been surprising is that our sales did do um, better than expected. And I think some of that has been 
the fact that, um, you know, despite the, uh, the pubs being shut, the hospitality industry being severely impacted, people were um, uh, turning their uh, attention, their um, uh, their desire for a, a beer uh, to pack, um, and um, so the uh, take-home trade, and uh, um, clearly we saw that in terms of uh, increase or record, um, for us, record sales of um, packaged beer. And a significant increase in uh, the percentage that cans occupy yes. in, in that segment. Yeah, so I think it's 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 so it's it's um, a combination um, as you're highlighting. It's not only the fact that people were uh, buying more uh, take-home beer um, from the off-trade, but also in our case, uh, they were turning more to uh, cans. So historically, uh, Coopers uh, has had a, a fairly weak. Uh, position uh, on canned beer um, and uh, historically um, uh, as you know Matt we were largely um, selling only lager beers mm. in, in cans. Uh, if we go back to uh, 2004 we introduced uh, in aluminium cans for the first time Dr Tim's and also Mild Ale. Um, we had in the 60s and 70s uh, my father, uh, Bill Cooper and, and Maxwell Cooper, had uh, introduced uh, as as young guns in the brewery. <laughs> they introduced uh, uh, steel cans, and of course, in those days, cans were were steel and they were three piece. So they were, you know, they came from um, the supplier seamed at one end, and then the brewery would seam the other end. But they were. Uh, you, you may or may not remember them, but they were very s- strong cans, like baked bean cans. <laughs> that, um, I'll, I'll be honest, this is one of the few times that I can actually say this, and that was before my time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. In terms of currently relevant trends, uh, you know, <laughs> which says a lot about how long I've been kicking around. But yeah. that's very, you know, very, very interesting. Do you think, because it's only been in the last three years that you've really put some of the core range into cans do you yes. think that there had been uh, that you may have lost sales in the years prior to that by being a little bit slower to the the, the, the uh, adopt the can trend yes definitely um uh, we can say that categorically because amcor had supplied cans i probably i may or may not have told you this story but they were desperately keen for us um to put pale ale in uh, um, aluminium cans and that, in, in actual fact they were also suggesting at the time in 2003 uh, Matt that they were interested in us trying um, steel drawn steel cans so they were doing an experiment with um, uh, their plant in uh, Western Australia and uh, I think it converted one machine over to be able to do drawn steel so uh, in some parts of the world Instead of aluminium cans, they use drawn steel. So they, to all intents and purposes, they seem the same as the aluminium cans, but they're actually made out of steel, uh, but light, light, very lightweight steel. But so anyway, uh, getting back to the story, um, Amcor prevailed upon us to do another uh, experiment. We'd tried before, but been unsuccessful. But they asked us to try and, again to put parallel in cans and. Um, when these can, they said they'd provide the cans free of charge. When they turned up, um, they had uh, Dr. Tim's traditional ale 
um, printed uh, on them, and I have an, um, one on my shelf here uh, behind me, um, uh, uh, just as, as proof that uh, it, it wasn't um, my idea to uh, uh, call it that, uh, <laughs> but it was actually Amcor's idea in order to try and uh, keep me interested in the whole program of trying to um, eventually get naturally conditioned beer in cans. Of course, the challenge that we had was um, that the beer, uh, as you would know, the beer is relatively low in um, carbonation when you uh, fill the can. So as they come off the line, the cans are uh, easily dented because um, there's no CO2 uh, or very little CO2 in the beer to keep the, um, the, the can um, um, firm um, and so we had that consideration to contend with and also uh, from the experiments we'd done before we were anxious that the flavour of the pale ale wasn't exactly the same uh, as the bottled pale ale so um, as such we 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 did this experiment it, it, in 2000 late 2003 I think it was um, it turned out better than we expected so we did another couple of experiments and then we 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 used them for promotional events uh, initially and then we started selling um, the product Dr Tim's um, but we we had a lot of discussions um, uh, over the years um, between sales, marketing, and, and operations um, about whether it was a good idea to convert over to uh, calling the product Pale Ale. Um, and my colleague Nick Sterenberg and I were, as brewers, we were we continued to be somewhat anxious that people might consider that the flavour is. A bit different with, with lager beers. There's, we can we can say um, with great confidence that the flavour um, uh, profile between lager and a can, the same product lager in a can versus a bottle is is, is very very similar and, and probably impossible for anyone to tell the difference. But with the naturally conditioned beers, there is a little bit of a difference, and that's because. Um, you know, the, the, it's a it's a live product. The, mm. the beer is, uh, you know, the ale is actually fermenting in the can, and and we do think that because of the oxygen, uh, probably because of the oxygen environment, that there's a little bit of flavour difference. But uh, I, I've 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 given a very long explanation <laughs> uh, to your question, but I think the the short answer is yes. Um, we definitely uh, suffered. Uh, as a result of not putting it, not calling it pale ale, because once we did call it pale ale, then particularly people interstate uh, were more prepared to buy the product. Um, and uh, uh, to tell you um, the difference, I mean, we were selling um, about 5,000 cases a month of Dr. Tim's, um, and we now sell um, about 60,000 cases a month of uh, pale ale and cans, so <laughs> it's made a huge difference uh, um, uh, to to the volume. Uh, of course, some of that volume is taken away from the the bottles, but nonetheless, additive. You know, when you add the cans and the bottles, it's we've seen a growth in in pale ale. And, and just, I wanted to pick up on that little uh, snippet about the the cans weren't pressurised because I remember when I inquired about this in the early. 2010s that, that that was one of the challenges you had to overcome because from memory you couldn't stack the the conditioning beer um high because there wasn't enough pressure to support the weight of the packages above is that correct 
Yes, we we were certainly worried about it. We looked at uh, we looked at it over an, an, a period of time, and in in the end, convinced ourselves that providing we only did two, we normally would stack um, bottles three high, but um, we only stacked those pallets um, two high. So it's a little bit it's it's less weight, um, uh, but but nonetheless, um, uh, the important thing was to try and. Uh, protect protect the, uh, uh, the the cans as much as possible um, while while the um, uh, the yeast um, uh, continued to ferment and provide the CO2, which which eventually after about two weeks or so um, means that the cans are then uh, fully um, up to uh, carbonation and, and and feel quite firm to the touch. Mm. I've followed the Dr Tim's with interest, and I think I had it for the first time in about two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine on a ferry to Kangaroo Island, I think it might have been, and, you know, having it in the can, which I'd never seen before, I couldn't, you know, my thinking was, well, why don't you release this everywhere? And that was at the time that cans were just really starting to become quite a substantial thing in the US for the craft beer scene. Um, Yes. You know, in, in some ways, Coopers went from having the opportunity to, be the first, you know, the, the industry leader here um, to be, you know, one of one of the last, uh, you know, craft breweries to put beer in cans. W- w- do you think that was a lost opportunity for Coopers? I think it, it was a lost opportunity. But having said that, I think we were nonetheless. I mean, well, we we we'd, we'd done the Doctor Tim's when, when we introduced mild. Um, we did make with with Glenn Cooper. We made the decision that we would put the mild in cans at the same time as bottles because we thought because we were introducing a new product um matt we could say well uh you know you you decide as as consumers you decide if you think that you prefer one versus the other and mild ale took quite a a while to to grow i I think in a way it's a little bit similar to great northern i mean i think that started off slowly and then and and it's Mm. become a startling success um uh, but um mild ale um Seemed to benefit from the uh, uh, from the sponsorship that we had with the with the V8s, the supercars. Um, but I think we, you know, we were just anxious uh, about this whole process of naturally conditioning in cans. And uh, apart from say um, maybe some craft brewers, uh, uh, we didn't think anyone else in the world was really doing it way back then uh, in in 2004. I, I asked um, our colleague at um, Sierra Nevada mm-hmm. about when they introduced naturally conditioned beer in cans, and I think they they only started in about 2000. And seven or thereabouts so um uh i think you know we feel that we were one of the earliest to do it and i think even the europeans uh, who make naturally conditioned beer or um, what they call refermentation beer uh, i don't know that there are many examples of those in cans so and, and i believe that even little creatures here that does do bottle conditioned they do do live conditioning but not in their cans since they introduced. So uh, it, it, it seems to have been something that even they weren't willing to, you know, uh, to, to, to take the leap at. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, so I think I think there's, there, there's just that anxiety about the fact that, um, you know, the cans are relatively weak and, um, uh, um, you know, you have to keep them fairly well protected until 
that the, the carbonation is complete. But I, I agree with your, uh, uh, when you ask the question, I agree with your point that, I mean, what we have benefited from is, uh, is because the craft industry has so graciously um, uh, embraced the idea of uh, beer in cans, um, I think that's helped us uh, enormously because, uh, you know, historically in Australia, cans um, uh, unfortunately had a uh, a bit of a bogan kind of <laughs> image <laughs> because, um, you know, much of the beer that was sold in cans was sort of... Uh, lower priced volume products sold in 30 packs, you know? So um, I think, uh, uh, you know, it was sort of cans were seen to be, you know, consumed by the, the more, more the, 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 the bigger drinkers or the, the, the beer drinkers who really enjoy their beer. Um, and so um, I think um, premium, uh, the premium cues of glass were therefore, quite strong because um you know uh, uh, you know there was crown lager in, in glass and and, and many mm. you know premium products in glass um uh, european all the international beers uh, for instance in glass so therefore you know you've got these uh cues um, market cues um uh, favoring a premium uh, a, a concept of premium in glass and um non-premium or everyday or or you know, cheaper, cheaper end of the spectrum in cans. But I think that has f- fortunately changed with the um, craft sector embracing uh, cans as a as a good form of um, uh, package for beer. I, I was also taken. I hadn't realised that it was the release of mild ale that that had given you the the, the the space to introduce them simultaneously. Because I again, I'd always been under the impression that that was a beer that had almost been released for the Cooper sponsorship of the of the, of the racing uh, cars, which people need to have cans. Um, to, to, to drink at some of those events and uh, yep. I, I, I'd not realised that it was actually the luxury of releasing a new product that it let you do the dual format and not just the focus on the uh, on the Super V8s yes absolutely and I think the um, uh, the the mild did precede uh, our sponsorship of the supercars by about five years or so I think we got we had I think 11 years of sponsorship of the of the supercars and um so I think we started in 2009. So I think uh, uh, 2009 or 10. But uh, uh, so we it preceded by a few years. Um, uh, Mild preceded by a few years. But uh, the, but what we did see is uh, a big uptake in in of Mild with the supercars. And as you say, uh, because at many of the events, um, mid strength beers were required. Is there much pressure? Obviously, consumers have adopted the format, and there's certainly a, like a generation of consumers. I, I'm old enough to still just prefer the feel of glass um, on my lips if I do drink from the package as opposed to cans. But the younger you go, um, the, the the less entrenched that is. Um, yes. So there's obviously a lot of consumer demand, um, particularly amongst a younger um, crowd. But how much retailer pressure is there uh, on a business like Cooper's to have the um, can format to be consistent on the shelves with uh, w- w- with all of the other packages that uh, are out there? 
Uh, I think the retailers, to be honest, will favour having both formats if the brand is strong enough. Right. Um, so uh, in our case, uh, that that um, safely covers um, uh, pale ale and sparkling ale. Um, and then uh, some of the other products, um, you know, we, we have to, you know, say with our lager beers, which, you know, historically, even though... Uh, we think uh, the world of um, Cooper's Dry and, and and its predecessor Cooper's Clear um, and uh, products uh, like our Light and so forth and our, our Lager, although we don't have a, a Cooper's Lager at the moment in in package, um, you know they're all good products, but they they struggled to compete with the mainstream products um, of of the um, of the two big brewers and so um where there's not uh deemed to be enough volume um going through um uh, being processed uh, you know in 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 the stores then um quite often the retailers will say you know they would uh, prefer just to have the bottles and not the cans um, unless it's a, unless it is a, a canned only um, variant of course and how about some of your newer products like the Pacific ale and the XPA do they yes. skew more heavily towards cans or are they yes yes they did and and so XPA we deliberately only released in cans right. initially we were only going to do um, uh, what was session ale in cans, and then um, uh, our, our sales teams uh, made an appeal for us to launch it in bottle form as well. Um, the the cans have done, but with both Pacific Parallel, uh, the rebadged Pacific Parallel, and the XPA have done extraordinarily well for us. So you know, we often uh, one of the questions that you know I think you. You, you have asked me in the past is, you know, would we ever be interested in, in buying a, you know, a, a craft <laughs> brewer? Uh, uh, you know, we often reflect that, you know, we could pay quite a bit of money for, you know, two or three million litres of beer uh, per annum from a craft brewer, um, but we can launch a product like XPA or launch a product like uh, Session Ale and we get two or three million litres of beer just with that added uh, variant, you know. So uh, <laughs> it's a, it's an easier way for us, providing we providing our marketing, uh, sales and marketing colleagues can, you know, guide us as to what what's likely to be successful, and that's that's the uh, that's the trick of it. You raise an interesting uh, point there because I, I note this week uh, you launched uh, your distribution rights for Ibisu, um, the, the Japanese, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and I'll... Uh, oh, yes, 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 Ebis, yes. Ebis, it's, it's sorry. tricky to say, Ebis, yes, Ebis. because they, the, y is, the, the Y is silent and the U is silent. Yeah. I can stop disgracing myself in Japanese restaurants now. Um, <laughs> thank you <laughs> no, for that. No, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you, you have, um, over the years, had partnerships with a number of international brands um, to, to distribute them, which I would imagine augments the full portfolio that you're able to take to market um, to, 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 to get ranging and tap points. But what... What's the difference between Cooper's distributing some of those brands and perhaps you know adding on um, you know and I don't mean to, to, to be rude here but maybe a, a younger hipper domestic craft brand um, to, to the Cooper's portfolio? 
again, a really good question. I think um, we we ponder the international editions um, uh, uh, when when the main product has has done well, and in this case, Sapporo's done well. We we more recently this year also brought out a 500 mil can of Sapporo as a as a trial, which seems to have gone well. Um, Ebis is a, a premium Sapporo product, and um, uh, initially we were told that we couldn't have it, but uh, as as our sales of Sapporo have grown over the years. Um, our Sapporo colleagues in Japan have decided that it would be good for us to to uh, bring in Evis as a as a premium uh, a Japanese product, premium Sapporo product. But I think we'll, we'll continue to reflect on on the craft sector. But I think we we, we feel that um, we're of a scale that means that you know we would prefer to focus on the brands that are going to be synergistic in terms of, you know, making a difference in volume. So um, I suppose because Sapporo is a reasonably big brand for us and Carlsberg has been as well, um, you know, we, we will focus on on how we can improve our performance with those two international brands. Um and I, I think we just feel that um, the addition of craft craft brands is is hard work, and I think you know where the craft um, uh, brewers do well is that they uh, are able to promote their own product um, in in the local region. Uh, um, very well, and they, you know, there's a lot of pa- passion and and energy in getting behind the products. And you know what we see generally is when when these when the craft brewers, uh, you know, p- when they sell to bigger brewers, uh, you know, sometimes the, that success is not translated through to the bigger brewer because, of course, uh, uh, you know, um, one people some people regard it as being um, a, a, you know a process of selling out yep. um and so therefore they decide they're not going to support you know the craft brewer anymore and 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 you've also potentially lost depending on what the arrangement is you've lost the 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 passion and enthusiasm and the energy of you know the founders of the brewery you don't think that with cooper's reputation you know cooper's occupies a very different place to the big two multinationals in a lot of ways. Do you, do you think mm-hmm. that Cooper's you know, reputation and values that are just universally accepted in the market would prevent that from happening? You know, that, that, that sort of loss of reputation if you did buy a small... It, I would have almost thought you'd sort of uh, lend a little bit of light to them. Yes, uh, it's an in- interesting concept and something which perhaps we should think about. I, I know... Um, we're going you to know, start rumours Gou- talking like this, Tim. Well, well, <laughs> well, well Mark Gulmi is our national sales uh, manager. Uh, he he has uh, he's often pondered whether we should, you know, uh, we we had this uh, company 
premium beverages, which we, is now fully incorporated within Coopers. So all our salespeople are, are now badged as Coopers. I mean, they were always seen as Coopers, but of course it operated for a long time as a separate company, premium beverages. But, you know, he's, he's often pondered aloud in a, in a way similar to what you're asking that, you know, perhaps we should have a specialist, you know, sales team that focuses on uh, craft, um, um, you know, craft products. And, and that was, you know, he was particularly thinking along those lines when we had Brooklyn. So we, we uh, you know, a few years ago, um, Mark made the decision to um, uh, team up with uh, Brooklyn. Mm. Um, so we... Um, uh, he and I went there, I think, probably th- three times, and Cam Pierce as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we developed quite a good relationship um, with the team at Brooklyn. Um, and uh, it was just um, happenstance that, unfortunately, uh, they decided to uh, sell um, 25% of their shares to Kieran. Mm. And um, and then the distribution uh, subsequently was taken away from us. But, um, you know, I'm only giving that little bit of background because on on the basis of that uh, success that we were having with the Brooklyn um, uh, portfolio, Mark was thinking that perhaps we, we could extend that to include other uh, craft um, um, products. So it's it's not something that we haven't discussed. It's, it's something which we've, we've done in a small way and which we may do again. But uh, uh, it's not sort of front of mind just at the moment. Okay. And I guess in the meantime, the, the craft breweries are certainly, uh, for, for want of a better term, your research and development um, department in a way because you're able to see what is working well for them in, in, in the case of the Session Ale or the, now the Pacific Ale and the XPA to see styles that have some traction and you can incorporate those into with the Cooper's twist in, in into your portfolio. Absolutely, absolutely right. And um, you know, I give the example of XPA. Um, I think Cam Pierce as uh, our marketing and innovation director uh, set up a meeting. You know, a few months before we launched XPA, and uh, said that um, you know, put to um, uh, Nick and myself and, and Michael Shearer that, you know, he'd like us to consider this product uh, or this type of product and come up with a suitable Cooper's um, uh, uh, beer uh, with the XPA um, label. And um, so uh, I think it was the following weekend uh, or a couple of weekends later, I, I asked, I took, I drove to uh, one of the local uh, large um Dan Murphy's and um, with my wife and um, she said why are we here and I said I'm, I'm <laughs> going to take a trolley around and we're going to grab all the XPAs and then I'm going to take them back to the brewery and we're going to taste them all and just see what what do other brewers think of this um, uh, name XPA what 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 do they what, what are they putting um, what what products are they producing and naming XPA. So there was a little bit of a range, um, but but certainly all of the most of the products had you know quite uh, f- uh, you know good hop character. Many of them dry hopped, and uh, um, uh, and of course uh, you know with a bit of uh, extra bitterness as well. Um, so uh, anyway, I think we've made quite a a nice uh, 
variant, which um, now um, Barbara enjoys drinking herself. So uh, uh, it's good that um, uh, we can make a beer that my wife enjoys. So, so she can uh, see the benefit of the Cooper's research, of being part of that that's, research. That's right, <laughs> indeed. On one hand, you know, the interpretations are, you know, it's a very on trend. But at the same time, there is a, you know, the, the, the Cooper's yeast is a very distinctive element of both of those beers, which uh, really gives it that Cooper's house style. Yes, I think I think that that's that's something which you know we see as a positive because the the, the Cooper's yeast, particularly the variant that we selected, uh, as you and I have discussed, you know, back in '99 we selected um, one of the um, two strains that came out of the mixed um, strain that we when I first joined the brewery we had mixed culture which had been in continuous. Um, um, propagation uh, since 1910. Well, that's that's as far back as our records went. So um, the uh, uh, would have been the second generation uh, Coopers were uh, brewing with this some kind of similar to uh, the, the yeast um, that we were using in the 90s when I when I joined the brewery in 1990. Uh, that you know it's it been in continuous. Uh, propagation for 80 odd years at that stage. So, but we we selected a single strain from that, um, and then in '99 transferred all production over to uh, using this single strain. But this single strain was the estuary one. Um, the other strain that we had um, was more sulphury and less estuary, um, whereas this one um, is nice and estuary and less sulphury. So um, it was. It's made a difference. I mean, we th- we think it makes the the, the ales um, uh, a pleasure to drink um, because it sort of adds to the refreshing uh, character of the beer. Um, uh, but uh, you know, so as you say, it is quite distinctive. Um, but and and it's not going to be the the taste for everyone. But uh, fortunately for us, it's you know um, seen as a good good flavour for for many by many consumers. Mm, and, and do you do you track um, you know demographics around your consumers? Because I I remember speaking to you probably close to 15, 16 years ago and talking about the Cooper story and, you know, there, there was uh, an element in the 80s when Cooper's became the beer that was the opposite of what that generation's dads drink and so it developed, a you know, like a, a coolness about it for them but, you know, that was my generation and now my children, uh, you know, at the stage, does Cooper's, you know, have that challenge itself now of staying relevant to a younger drinker? I think so. Uh, well, I think we have to keep on uh, reinventing ourselves. So uh, we have to keep on reinventing ourselves um, uh, from a marketing perspective. Um, uh, Kate Dowd, our marketing manager, works with uh, uh, Cam Pierce. Kate has, uh, with um, uh, quite a lot of research work, um, um, we, we now has, uh, have as our marketing uh, slogan, forever original. But, you know, there's She's putting a lot of work into thinking how we uh, keep ourselves relevant to the next generation of beer drinkers. And, um, you know, we, we know that many of our loyal drinkers um, are now p- perhaps in their 40s and 50s. Um, so we need to keep on recruiting people in their 20s um, and 30s so that we don't face that same issue that we, we uh, you know, that... My father, when he joined the brewery back in 1960, 
uh, he was concerned that, uh, and, and as was the third generation, both those generations were concerned that the number of ale drinkers and stout drinkers would drop off um, and then they would uh, go out of business. So hence why they got into lager production at the end of the 1960s. So we, I think it's, it's fair to say, Matt, that we do have to keep on reinventing ourselves and make sure that we keep ourselves relevant to the next um, generation of consumers. Um, but I think, it, you know, just as we've discussed, having the products like Pacific Pale Ale and XPA, um, uh, and more recently we did the uh, Hazy IPA last year and the Aussie IPA this year as as seasonal variants, um, uh, you know, seasonal uh, beers, um, I think they add a bit of interest and, and hopefully, uh, you know, uh, give the opportunity for a new group of um, uh, beer lovers to try our beer and, and hopefully become attached to it. Are you going to continue to use some of these emerging craft-tested styles? Because there was a period with the Thomas Cooper's range and things where you were developing your own styles um, of beers and they didn't quite have that market presence that perhaps you know, Pacific Pale Ale has. Do you think you'll work look at developing things in-house or will you keep an eye on what's happening in the craft space? I think we do. I think we need to see yeah, what's happening in the craft space, what's happening in the market generally. I mean, we're, you know, we're, uh, it's, it's very interesting to see how well some of these sort of, um, how, how, how the mid-strength market's continuing to grow and, you know, the, these beers, which are very neutral in flavour, have done remarkably well, and yet at the other end of the spectrum, you know, the the craft sector continues to flourish with you know much stronger flavoured products. So I think we we do need to keep watching uh, what's happening generally in the market. Um, and you're dead right. I mean, we tried in the 90s without a lot of success. We tried with about five different products, um, filtered ales, thinking that that might be the way for us to uh, progress. But um, those filtered ales didn't really catch on particularly well. You know, what what has, I mean, obviously the pale ale really grew on the back of um, the opening up of the South Australian market. So when Lion took over South Australian Brewing in 1993, they made the excellent decision for us um, to sell all the pubs, so they had a tighter state. South Australian Brewing had a tighter state of about 120 pubs, and from 94 to 99, I think thereabouts, uh, through this Manco agreement, they sold the pubs to the publicans, and that meant that the publicans could put our beer on tap. And and it was just we'd only just introduced um, pale ale and kegs in 1989, so 1994 onwards then saw this huge growth in in pale ale. Um, and I think it was about 98 that Pale Ales overtook Sparkling Ale because up until that stage, Sparkling Ale had been our biggest product. Um, and so uh, we've, we've had success almost unwittingly. Uh, I mean, you know, you obviously have to work hard for success, but you, you also have a, have a bit of good luck at times. And that was a bit of serendipity for us that that's what happened in the South Australian market. And then subsequently we developed our own sales team outside of South Australia in 2003, starting premium beverages uh, as a new business. And, and that, then we saw a, a huge growth in in our products outside of South Australia, having our own sales representation. So, but I think, you know, we, we can't, 
stop. We have to keep on thinking. We have to keep on seeing what others what others are doing. What what how uh, taste profiles are changing. I mean, who would dream that you know, uh, say thirty years ago, that um, uh, a significant part of the market, say you know, ten percent uh, of the of the the beer market, uh, beer category is. Uh, more strongly flavoured uh, beers, you know, in, in terms of the hoppy beers and the, the the craft beers and our ales and so forth. I mean, we've grown from one percent of the market to five percent of the market, mm. which is fantastic. And you know, the 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 craft beers, you know, represent another five percent of the market. So uh, it's it's um, a fantastic change over a period of time. It is, and you gave me about half a dozen things I would love to have, threads I would have loved to have pulled apart in that answer, but uh, I'm very conscious of time. So I will just uh, ask one, with changing tastes, how does Dr. Tim Cooper feel about like the hazy IPA? It's, it's certainly, you know, hazy is a part of Cooper's DNA with the cloudy but fine, um, you know, campaign, but... Uh, how do you feel about the taste of some of these new styles that are coming out, the juicy and hazy IPAs? Yeah, you're very insightful, um, Matt. I, I uh, when when that idea came up, uh, I, I just laughed because I said um, to my colleagues, I said, "But what, why would we <laughs> do hazy IPA? Because our beers are already hazy. That doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me. Won't, won't, won't people just say?" Oh no! Why would Coopers do that? That seems illogical. Um, and then the answer was, "Oh well, we need to make it more hazy." <laughs> and I said, "Well, we can certainly do that, but is that what we want to do?" Um, anyway, I, I think we came up. We we did use um, uh, some wheat malt, um, and we did use some uh, uh, raw barley, uh, unmalted barley as well. So we, you know, we deliberately changed the grist to make it so that the, the wort was going to be hazier than normal wort uh, in the brew house. Um, and, uh, and then really our focus was to make sure that we selected um, uh, nice uh, American hops, which uh, we thought would sort of, um, uh, I think it was uh, a tart and strat we chose. And, you know, a nice combination of hops and with dry hopping uh, make a product that we were happy to drink ourselves and that's always a key point you know we've got to be happy to drink them drink the beer ourselves and I think we achieved that I think our marketing colleagues may have been a bit disappointed in me that it wasn't as juicy uh, (laughs) in uh, color um, that that they they wanted, but anyway, I think it it worked well, and and the people, you know, a number of people have said to me that, that it's a shame that it's now finished because um, you know they like the flavour of it. So I think it's something for us to uh, think about for a, a future um, uh, release uh, is to perhaps bring back a, a product like, similar to the hazy IPA. But, of course, you know, we we also reflected that it was, you know, like a New England IPA, um, uh, you know, so, so sort of fairly hoppy and, and, and you know, good uh, dry hopping character, but without the, you know, perhaps the bitterness of um, 
some of the West Coast uh, IPAs. Of course, of course. The last question I wanted to ask from the results was, one of the things that really leapt out at me, and it was right at the very end, was that you conducted a, a share buyback recently um, at a price of $425 a share. That must have been you know, a, a fairly nice figure when you think of the Lion takeover was around $290, you know, and that's a, I think that's a tenfold increase in the buybacks that were taking place around that time. In, ter- in terms of the price, do you mean? Mm, in terms of yes, the share yes, price. Yes, no, no, you're, you're, you're right. Um, we did do a, a share buyback in 2003 at $45, mm. um, and uh, you know that was based on a um, based on a um, expert valuation or valuation done by the um, uh, chartered accountants uh, accountancy firm. Um, I think uh, you know in retrospect. Uh, you know, even though it was, um, you know, done at a arm's length and done by um, uh, expert valuers, it, it does. It, it probably didn't fully reflect the uh, future um, earnings potential of of, of Cooper's. Uh, you know, as 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 we, you know, as was seen at the time, um, but probably, you know, I mean, I remember when, the, you know, that number came out. Uh, prior to that, the the shares had traded at I think sixteen dollars mm. and twenty seven cents or something. So of it course. was a big, you know, we were shocked when it went up to forty five dollars. And of course, <laughs> then uh, <laughs> then uh, uh, then uh, with the Lion Nathan takeover offer of two hundred and sixty dollars, um, uh, it was, and that was only two and a half years later um it was another big jump up again admittedly of course our volumes had grown quite a lot in the meantime uh, so it is uh, as you reflect nice to see it up at 425 dollars um we have bought back a number of shares uh since the lion nathan battle um so it's not uh, although it, it does mean that the the company is valued more than at that time back in 2005 it's not quite as dramatic as as the share price indicates because we have bought back um uh uh, i think 30 odd percent of the shares i think it's about 30 odd percent of the shares in that time frame so can i ask the um, incredibly vulgar question in 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 a way of what that values the business the entire business at and i'm I'm just asking because i'm bearing in mind the recent sale of stone and wood and some of the figures that were bandied around for that yeah um, well, it gets it closer to 500 million, not quite 500 million, but closer to 500 million. Just, but, but we have to, and we, we do discuss this a little bit internally. We have to reflect that this is for small parcels of shares trading hands in what's an illiquid market. So, you know, because the shares can't be sold outside of the, um, the existing shareholder base, it means that there's a discount for, um, uh, you know, when when the experts look at a share value under those circumstances, they say, well, it has to be discounted because it can't actually be sold on the open market. So uh, it suffers a discount as a result of that. And on the flip side, um, Matt, if the company was, you know, uh, when we faced the hostile takeover bid um, in 2005, you know, you get a uh, a takeover premium often, which is, I think, quoted to be about 30%. So, um, you know, clearly Stone and Wood have, have you know, in their, in their pricing uh, is, a, is, a, is a takeover premium. In other words, the, 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 the company that, 
you know, is wanting to buy the other company pays a 30% premium because they get control of the whole company. So as opposed to a small parcel of shares changing hands. Mm, but but you, even, you, under, you okay. understand all of that. Yeah, yep. but e- even with the uh, 30% premium, it, it, if, if you look at the valuations, because the 500 million is the number that's been bandied about, and I have no knowledge of how accurate that is or whether it's just a... Just the media, um, but Stone and Wood is a quarter of the size of, of of Coopers. So, is there any fear that shareholders might start looking at some of those numbers? And I think they I think their volumes a quarter, but I think their EBITDA, um, our EBITDA is only twice theirs. Right. And I think I think that's um, because. Uh, Stone and Wood have been tremendously successful in getting their beer on tap, you know, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland. So um, I think that's something that we strive to improve our performance. I think we, you know, on the industry data, we have um, something like, you know, a, a bit over 3.5% of the tap volume, but we have you know, closer to 6% of the package volume. So we, we we outperform on the package front, but underperform on the keg front. And it's it's all a matter of, you know, getting ourselves in front of the publicans and trying to convince them one way or another to put put Coopers on tap. But but there is a lot of, uh, a lot of choice, a lot of um, competition, and um, it's not as easy as one might one might think but anyway that that's getting off topic well no well in fact it opens a topic that I would have loved to have explored with you about because Coopers was always that one independent tap and Stone and Wood sort of came to that but I'm very conscious of time so um, <laughs> we have a habit of going well over time uh, when we <laughs> when we speak Tim so the, the, the one question I will ask is yeah. what's your future um, because you, you've been at the helm of the company for a while we've started to see the sixth generation come in uh, you know what, what are your plans um well i turned 65 this year I, I i've said to my colleagues look i'll i'll certainly do another couple of years if, if they're happy to have me around um and um uh, we do have um a couple of the uh, sixth generation members of the family in the business um glenn's son andrew and my daughter louise um, and there probably will be more in the future, but there is there is quite a big intergenerational gap, so that's uh, uh, thought provoking. Um, but uh, hopefully, Matt, I'll continue to carry on. You know, providing the health is okay, and you know, keep my. Uh, beer consumption in, in moderation, <laughs> which I, I aim to do, which I think is good for health. Um, then, you know, a, a, a cardiac <laughs> surgeon uh, saying that, so I think we can take that for granted. <laughs> you're you're very generous. <laughs> I, I did cardiology, but I didn't ever I didn't ever become qualified. So I, I have to sort of hasten to add that you know maybe unreliable, un, un although I believe it. Um, but uh, yes, I know. Hopefully, if if health um, being okay, then perhaps I can uh, certainly do another couple of years. And um, uh, and you know, we're over that time. We'll have to keep thinking on um, how, how the future for the management in in the business looks uh, as we go forward. Um, well, I, I certainly hope you do, and hopefully that means we'll also get to uh, have one more, at least one more uh, 
on, on mic uh, chat for, for, for the podcast uh, but before you do. So before I do get any angry uh, messages from uh, Leanne, I will say, Dr. Tim Cooper, it's always a pleasure and thank you very much for your time. Oh, no, thank you, Matt. And sorry, I, my, my answers are often too long and uh, uh, that's why we go over time. So it's not <laughs> you at all, it's me. <laughs> Thanks for all your interest. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation.